Blog Talk Radio. All right. All right. Yeah. Uh, You guys want to start the show? Let's start the show. Saturday morning cereal with me, Dan Grimshay, and of course, my buddy and yours, Marky. Say hi, Marky. Hey, what's up? What's going on, Marky? <laughs> Glad to be back. Anyway, as we as we sit in the sweltering studio recording this, it's uh it's almost July here. Uh-huh. Uh con season is upon us. Can't wait for that. Comic Con itself just weeks away. Mm-hmm. Uh and in that spirit today, yeah, we've got a we've got kind of a special episode. This is essentially uh, all thanks to someone we met in line. In in line, I, I, it wasn't even in line. No, you're right. You're right. It, it was, was it, but but this is a Comic Con buddy that uh-huh. we made, uh, and we reached out to later, and we sat down. The three of us had this nice long uh, uh, conversation over Skype, which we recorded. I don't know if he was aware of that, but we did. <laughs> he was re- he was very well aware. He, he was aware of that. Okay, good. <laughs> I feel better about this then. But uh, I'm talking about Glenn McIntosh. The, who, uh, you might just think I'm talking about Joe Schmo from uh, you know Middle America. It might as well be. But here, let me set the scene before I tell you who he is. Go ahead. We're we're mil- we're at Comic Con 2015, uh, San Diego. Uh, gorgeous weather, mm-hmm. people in cosplay, spirit of celebration in the air. Absolutely, of course. Uh-huh. Uh, and in between some panels and some press junkets we were doing, you and I, uh, Marky, we had a little bit of time to walk the show floor, which is always so. It's my, mm-hmm. I, it's my favorite part. Mm-hmm. Uh, and somewhere around the, I think it was a sideshow booth. As tradition, we always go. we always we always pass by and stop. Yeah. yeah, it's great. You know, you know, slice of, of everything that's <laughs> going kind on. Of right in the middle, the superhero stuff yeah. and the Star Wars and the. Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Well, they probably don't have that anymore, but you know what I'm saying. They're, they're statues, figures, life-size figures. Yeah, and some of the best famous. craftsmanship it, on display. Probably so, the best, yeah. uh, It's a popular attraction. Uh, and we uh, struck up a conversation with a guy who was standing there looking at uh, it was, some of the Star Wars ships. It was the Hot Toys Millennium Falcon cockpit. <laughs> you remember? Yeah. See, I love that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. We were looking and had a little conversation. Not like a snarky thing or anything, but like, oh, is this this does seem real and with this guy uh-huh. next to us who is obviously excited to see it too. Snap forward. Turns out his name is Glenn McIntosh. Right. And while we were having a good time, no matter who he was, He's kind of a big wig at ILM. Yeah, he industrial they, light match. Right. They they actually sent him there um, mm. to somehow assist or represent Sideshow. He's probably a part of ILM or Lucas Licensing. Some, some liaison. Yes, exactly. To, to the Sideshow booth. Exactly. Uh, I you know, but 
but it didn't look like they had to force him to go. No, not at all. <laughs> this guy was awesome. He's, yeah, yeah. He's, he's in our headspace, everybody. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And uh, and and maybe even though I've told you, Glenn McIntosh, the uh, name's not ringing a bell for you. Tell him, tell him well, who he is, Marky. Tell me, him what. Tell him, tell him where they can find his work. Well, starting with off, well, the commercial we just heard. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Of course. I, I, the I old honeycombs commercial. Yeah, that was from like 1999 or something like that. Yeah. But, but and for those of you who are listening to us on the radio instead of our incredibly successful network primetime television show, uh-huh. the visual you missed in that commercial was uh, as a young kid with a skateboard after a guy uh, steals a woman's purse. Dark yeah. beginning to a serial <laughs> commercial, by the yeah, way. You're right. But I don't know if they've ever gone back to that well. But uh, fear not. Help my purse. <laughs> he, he says, "Oh," and because along with her purse, the thief stole a uh, shopping bag with some honeycombs exactly in it. This 12-year-old skateboarder, opportunity mm-hmm. dollar signs flash in his eyes, honeycombs in his dreams, says, "I got it." Hops in his skateboard and immediately transforms into this total CGI cross between like uh, Muppet and the Tasmanian Devil. <laughs> yeah, the character. Good, he kind of looks like a, like a serial troll. Yeah, like yeah, a gremlin, but with, but with a big smile and fluffy hair, yeah, so he's yeah. not too threatening. But uh, yeah, nab the purse snatcher yeah. in the end. But that was Glenn McIntosh. Glenn McIntosh back was, before was the anyone animator, thought of doing right. total CGI in in commercials, no less. He was on it. He was definitely on it. His his CV is um, animator, lead animator. Animation supervisor, character animator, lead character animator, storyboard artist, and I just put geek. Cause yeah, he does. I, he does all those roles <laughs> with a plum. But maybe you're still saying, well, big deal. My cousin's a character animator on this web series, and he makes forty dollars a week. No, and no. This guy he doesn't work with our friend Glenn McIntosh. This family. guy is quite literally. <laughs> he he was the character creator, animator for and our for visual. He created Binks. Okay, now that's just one <laughs> of his many claims to fame. I love this, right? But I mean, yeah. this was. I mean, this was. This is amazing. And for all of the comments about this character, we can never ever downplay its significance in motion picture history of what it did for animated characters. It was the first of its kind. Absolutely, bar none, changed everything afterwards. I, we I know don't it. know if the history books have been written on it quite yet, but uh, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, it's everybody bad. knows the. Uh-huh. And uh, this is the, this is the guy who modeled the character yeah. together. Did not make any of the decisions. He did but, not write a line of dialogue. But I don't want to bury what we what we talk about with. Uh-huh. We we put him to task for that, and you'll hear that Absolutely. as we as we come up to his interview. But he is work. He was the head guy in. Jurassic World just recently. He's worked on Transformers, uh, a couple of Transformers. He did on, right, he worked on Star Wars Episode Two, of course. Episode you know. Two. He did Episode Three. Um, he was the um, uh, he was the storyboard artist for Lone Survivor. That was a movie that came out a couple years ago. Um, he worked on Battleship uh, Pacific Rim. He also did, and you guys are going to hear about this in the interview, he was the animation supervisor for the Star Tours 3D adventure, the Disneyland ride. Oh, see? I mean, no, he, did, he did all of that. That's big. And, that's going to get a lot more play than any movie. There's actually a very he, – he tells a great story about that, so yep. you guys have something to look forward to on that. Um, yeah, he did um, the, um, the, um, the, tra- the Transfers of the Fallen. Um, he was uh, – he worked on Aragon. He was on the War of the Worlds. 
Um, he did the day after tomorrow. He so was you know this Hulk. guy knows what he's doing. Deep blue the, sea. The, 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 it just goes it's on, just on and on and on and on. And all he has conversations with George Lucas and stuff. Industrial Light and Magic. This was the company that when George Lucas wanted to make Star Wars, he had this vision in his head. And at the time, in 1976 or 75 or when they were starting to put this thing together, mm -hmm. there nothing existed that could bring his vision to life. So George Lucas started this company called Industrial Light and Magic, completely started this company just to make Star Wars, well, kept this company his own, and flash forward, was it 40 years later? And it is responsible for all those films that I just that Glenn that yeah. at minimum that Glenn has worked on. Yeah, oh, it's and a movies. No. It's a fraction. It's a, it's a standard. Yeah, it is. A if you don't standard. know ILM, then you I don't know how you found this podcast. <laughs> yeah, you obviously know what ILM is. Yeah. And we. But are, on that note, on with the podcast. Let's talk to Glenn McIntosh. Bring him out here, interview machine. It's great to hear from you guys. I had so much fun when uh, we were at Comic Con the, uh, the last year. So, yeah, Glenn here is is one of our uh, one of our line buddies from Comic Con. Yeah. You make some great friendships out of your line buddies. <laughs> it's a good way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. If if there was a, if anyone ever w wanted to find me uh, each year, chances are if you if you walked by the sideshow. Uh, uh, booth area every 15 minutes you'd find me <laughs> <laughs> and and you are you're geeking out just as much as everybody else really oh absolutely it's a you know so many of the employees at ILM are you know like the biggest geeks of all because you know like that's why they're there because they you know it was one of those things where they just they had to pursue it they they had to do it for a living and and uh, a lot of people you know love the movies and and collect the the figures and are passionate about it, but you know, there's, you know, the 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 other uh, people that are just so passionate about it that they've just they've got to do it for a living, and then that was definitely me. Well, I got to ask then, is that is that kind of reflected in the like the hiring process at ILM? What is that is, or is it the same as getting any other like graphic design corporate job? Just you know, happens it's, to you you t you typically look at the uh, the real. Is um, you you look at sort of for like a cross section of like uh, for, for, now I'm speaking from an animation point of view just because that's what I know, but um, a cross section of, of what um, uh, you would typically expect to see in in our movies, and so it might be different from say a Pixar reel. So, uh, but as much as possible, you try and make it um, uh, there's like a wide range, so you would have you know, animals and humans. Uh, you would have ships and uh, animals. You would have uh, realistic movement. You would have cartoony movement. You would have uh, acting uh, action, and you would have versus, like, say, action, you know, so, like sort of subtle versus very broad, you know. So as much as possible, you're trying to sort of show um, the hiring team that, you know, you're as versatile as possible because typically we would get a portfolio that might have, you know, nothing but dinosaurs, and then you wonder if they can do robots or ships, or uh, conversely, if they have nothing but, uh, you know, spaceships and uh, uh, X-Wing fighters, you wonder if, if there's an animal show that would come along, something like uh, 
the the revenant you know like well can they animate a bear you know so then you'll so as much as possible you try and uh, uh, provide i always encourage the students to have a a portfolio that has like a, a wide range of stuff so can you kind of describe what yours look like or what it had in oh, it. My yeah, reel. Glenn, oh my what God. can you well, do? We're going back a ways. <laughs> we're going to need so you to apply again. <laughs> I don't think I'd get in. I, I'm blown away consistently by the reels that I see. Um, there's a, a company that uh, one of the uh, animation supervisors, uh, Sean Kelly, started called Animation Mentor. Uh, it's in like an online animation school, and I, I did a number of uh, lectures uh, for it as far as, as, far as like uh, animal movement and character design and how design influences uh, movement and how in nature, you know, nothing is designed by accident. And um, uh, I had a chance to do a commencement speech, and then uh, one year uh, I went to film school with uh, Dean Deblois, who um, uh, went... I ended up directing uh, and writing uh, How to Train Your Dragons uh, 1 and 2, and he also worked on Lilo and Stitch and Mulan, and uh, he gave the commencement speech, and then while we were at the uh, animation mentor graduation for the, the students, they were showing a reel of all of the, uh, like a lot of the student reels at, at the graduation, and you know, I leaned over to him and just whispered, like, oh, my God, this I would be embarrassed to show my reel uh, <laughs> nowadays compared to uh, the work that's being done by the students. It's, it's just... Um, well, is that technology just getting better then? I mean, they now everyone has access to a program better, that does this? better for sure, yeah. Like, it, you know, when I... Uh, I sound like the old curmudgeon, but when I when I... Uh, got out of uh, Sheridan, you uh, essentially put your reel under your arm and you started knocking on on doors. And um, because it was still sort of a 2D world, there was you know Disney feature animation, and then there was Bluth Studios uh, that had done American Tale and Land Before Time and All Dogs Go to Heaven, and then of course the Dragon's Lair movies and Secret of Nim, which I loved. Yeah. And um, I didn't have a green card, so. Uh, the Disney recruiter encouraged me to, you know, to sort of try and get some experience there. Uh, my portfolio had been looked at by uh, one of the recruiters from Amblimation, which then ultimately became DreamWorks. But uh, when they were still Amblimation in uh, London, um, they were considering me to be a storyboard artist for Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats that Steven Spielberg was going to produce. Uh, but by the time I got over there uh, to meet with them, the project had fallen through. But by the I was so close, I took like a a, a train to Hollyhead, Wales, and then a ferry over to uh, Dublin, and then I had to do a cleanup test because they weren't hiring animators, but they were hiring cleanup artists. And I didn't even know what a cleanup artist was at the time. It was just sort of, you know, tying down the animators' loose drawings and um, uh, putting them on model and making sure that they had the correct volume and the the uh, they you know the, there's a nice thick and thin quality to the line for the cell painters uh, to work from. And Sounds so I like had like actually three. a hard, tedious job. Yeah, this, this it is really is. It, it really <laughs> is. By the hard. name, I, I would think it's like a hitman, like an <laughs> Irish cleanup artist. <laughs> so like, they worked for the Buckboyles. There, there would be artists that would have like triple H pencils, and they would you could hold the the drawing uh, like an inch away from your face, and you'd swear it was done with an ink pen. Like they were just so talented shit. And I was just, I, I could you know sort of put it on model. So I was. Uh, really nervous about it, but anyway, I got through the, the five drawings in in three hours, and and they accepted me. So uh, in the interim, it was uh, while I was working as a cleanup artist, I was at night 
there was you know a, a camera uh, and all this animation paper and so i was only limited in that capacity by my you know my imagination and so it was a uh, saw it as a fantastic opportunity in a professional studio to work on my own reel and so i uh, did an animation test and uh, got uh, don bluth on a on a saturday and showed him my reel and uh, he was uh, he was like what do you do again i go i'm a cleanup artist but i went to sheridan college school of uh, classical animation he goes oh well we'll just make you an animator <laughs> oh, nice. so that was uh, that was fantastic but it, it what it was so interesting at that time was that you were limited by how good an animator you animator you are by how good a drafts person you were um meaning that uh like all the best animators at that time were the best draftsmen so you had like glenn Keane and john pomeroy and uh linda miller and um they were all um, able to draw the characters from any angle. So if you were imagining a performance in your head, um, you were you had to be able to imagine you had to be able to draw that performance from every angle. And and if you weren't a good draft person, good draft person, that would limit your animation because it's um, you're not able to draw the character from every angle and on model and give it volume. Uh, and so that was really um, uh, tricky, and the, you know, you saw like the the artists that were so naturally gifted, and I it was something that I thought I was pretty good at until I saw the you know some of the other artists, and I realized I was um, you know uh, something that I is something that I really needed to work at. And uh, so switching to CG was interesting in the sense that now you've got a three dimensional puppet essentially, and now you're only limited by your uh, capacity to um, take the rules of animation and apply them to this puppet, and it turns out the same rules uh, applied. Um, but it was a, uh, a fantastic opportunity to now um, take those rules and animate in the computer, and um, so that freed things up immensely. It sounds. It seems to me like that would just be a completely different world altogether. It, like it apples was and oranges. It, it was in many respects in the sense that it was more like uh, instead of a cheated drawing, uh, uh, you um, you had to be mindful of the uh, the idea of that you're manipulating a, a dimensional like a puppet in in three dimensions, and it was very important because downstream from you they were doing cloth sims on the characters, uh, they were doing simulations uh, for uh, bits of uh, like either either like muscle or skin or hair, and so you couldn't cheat uh, the pose because that would goof up the simulation. And uh, like I know a lot of times uh, there were uh, Jar Jar, for example, his ears would interpenetrate through his body if his if you uh, moved his shoulder too far forward or if you lowered his shoulder or his chest too high his or too low his vest would slide off of his body. So it was a great exercise in. Uh, making sure that the uh, the pose looked great from every angle, and then of course once you handed it off to the technical directors who lit the scene, um, if you had posed it in a weird way, that would affect the lighting. And uh, very quickly, a lot of times you'd get like a phone call from the uh, technical director, like, "Is it? What did you? Is there something going on here? Are the feet not locked down to the ground? Or like I'm getting some weird shadows?" Or and then you'd go back in and have to adjust it um, because there was 
so much of what you did was uh, dependent on the poses that you did. So it was it was a great exercise in now thinking three dimensionally instead of just um, thinking of a drawing. There were that many revisions to Jar Jar Banks. <laughs> we still got that final result. <laughs> Here's the still, joke. Here still it got is. that final result. No, no. I would say on a technical level, I never once saw you know like you're talking about where you know part of him just uh, just stays still while the rest of him it you know the, does like the video game uh, jagged edge. Right. Immobile right. arm, yeah. sliding vest. Uh, you got you guys nailed your part. I, I don't oh, think anybody had a well, problem with, much. with uh, well, Jar Jar technically. I mean, yeah, well, more, thank you. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. it was it was uh, you know people uh, you know he's he's sort of uh, uh, not the most well received character. History has not been kind to Jar Jar, but uh, the what was interesting was the. Um, uh, I, I just as a, as a test, I, I know that I was sort of like trying to um, improve as far as like my animation techniques, but I was also I was doing like these dialogue studies, and so I took a scene from Spartacus, and I animated um, Kirk Douglas uh, talking to the uh, the gypsy played by Herbert Lom, and um, and he's very stoic in the shot, and he has his arms crossed, and he's talking about how he could. If he saw into the future and the army was dead, his whole army was dead, you know, would he still continue to fight? And I put Jar Jar in the exact same pose, and um, then he and used his dialogue. So it was uh, Jar Jar talking like Kirk Douglas. Mises. <laughs> um, but what was <laughs> was that you, how much his character changed by keeping him very still like no longer he wasn't the fool anymore he was sort of this like stoic warrior and yeah. uh so it was um uh but it, it was sort of like these uh challenges uh, sort of like what would happen if you if you changed up uh, the dialogue and how it how it changes his character and how he poses and how he moves and that, so that was yeah, always I a think, lot of fun to do I, I think i noticed that in the next movie when he was uh you know like like a full-on senator he didn't. Right. At no at no point did he suddenly start waving his arms around or just be comic relief. In fact, as far as the story goes, uh, he he had a hand in in the whole destruction of yeah. the whole. So, <laughs> yeah. From the Star Wars point of view, hey, thanks for making him serious. Had, right. The way time. he had voted, the way he did, uh, it uh, had sort of a lasting impact on the uh, Republic, didn't it? Yep. Yeah. Well, yep. And, and you know, and I still shaking it out in the movies. I I I have actually, uh, you know, I don't know if it's George Lucas's ability to adapt to the to the response to a character, or if he is just like this Machiavellian genius, and that you make a character that is tries to be uh, loved, tries to be accepted, and we do feel for him in that in that in that way, and he annoys some of us. <laughs> right. Um, but then at the same time, he's ultimately responsible for the downfall of the whole Republic. Uh-huh. So, you know, so you kind of put this character in this really strange position of wanting him to fit in and and wanting him to be accepted and loved and appreciated, yeah. and yet at the same time he ends up ultimately being the one that just kind of tears it all down. Yeah. <laughs> well, what was fascinating was you know at the time when we're working on it, it, it was just, it, and it, it's, it's so strange to think of it now. It was just unheard of the idea of you know you had cg characters we had seen dinosaurs in jurassic park and we we had seen the the terminator 
um, two, uh, 1000 mm-hmm. in Terminator 2. But there was a scene I remember where Liam Neeson was, you know, talking to uh, Jar Jar. And, you know, they're both in shadow and then they pass out of shadow into light. And it, it was just really fun to see. Like, you, you saw the potential of where things were going. Uh, and it's, it's, it's been such a fascinating period in the last 20 years where we've been able to witness the evolution of modern visual effects, yeah. where you sort of, you've got this amazing toolbox, or toy box, I should say. It's not really tool. It's, it's sort of you're, you're, we're playing, essentially. Yeah. But you can see how much the performances, how much more um, dimensional the performances got, how much more subtle and nuanced the performances yeah. got as people started to play with the technology and get more, and you know, so sort of like what I was saying about like the Kirk Douglas test, it was sort of like, and then you'd start to see, uh, you know, what Andy Serkis is doing with Gollum or what um, uh, Bill Nighy was doing with Davy Jones. I mean, and so you, you, you started to, you know, and now of course, like the Jungle Book, which just came out and you're seeing uh, just with each movie now, you're seeing this, these, these great leaps forward and just, you know, what, the artists are are, uh, are able to do and, well. Well, and then you let me. To, you really have to deal with the people. Jar Jar started it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, really no. With it. he started it. No, I'd say maybe Tom Hanks and Polar Express started. That was it. After. that was that was a uh, you know a big leap forward, and and like that's another leap where it's you know it's uh, akin to you know the Model T. The it's uh, you've you've got the car, and now you're starting to. You know, and then you're starting to develop it, and uh, you know, make it or the make it faster and make it uh, uh, more streamlined. And as the technology gets better, the you know, it gets faster. And uh, this with the same thing with the animation. You know, the technology got better. The um, it got quicker for us. So all of a sudden, we started adding more characters. And but that doesn't been, necessarily uh, equate. You know, it just uh, it's just going to keep getting faster versus what you can achieve in animation. So I got to ask. I'm going to throw a nice technical term I know out there here. But do you uh-huh. think this is bringing us further in to the uncanny valley, or are we climbing out of it? Did we already pass through that? Ooh, I that's think too much. We're finally climbing out of it because we're realizing, you know, like what it is that that makes the the, the nuanced. Uh, you, you know, just because we've done so much research into what actors do, and uh, initially it was sort of, you know, as animators we typically like to, you know, move stuff around. We like to animate. We like to, you know, have everything moving. Um, and then you realize, you know, you can get away with just a pose or a look. And so we started as much as possible, or for me anyway, looking at reference. You know, so you'd look at. Uh, Meryl Streep and Kramer versus Kramer or Robert De Niro and Raging Bull and you'd you'd see just you know how much you could get away with and a lot of it was slavishly frame for frame referencing exactly what they did and then studying you know well why is it that that, that works you know I know that Scott Benza animated a scene of um, Optimus Prime as Peter O'Toole from Lawrence of Arabia so and uh, you know like what sort of subtlety can you put on the controls for these what stood in for the eyebrows and what stood in for the eyes and what sort of little eye darts could you put in and make sure that it it still had life in it even though the head is very still and i th- and uh we've learned so much uh in these past few years that i think uh that uncanny valley where we're starting to come out of it because we're realizing um 
what what you can get away with and what you can't. So. You know, uh, I believe when uh, Phantom Menace came out that it lost the special effects award to The Matrix, right? It did. Yeah. Yes. And um, it's funny now because, you know, uh, from what I remember of The Matrix, it was that gimmicky slow motion bullet thing with the mm-hmm. falling backwards. Mm-hmm. And mo- movies kind of copied it time. for a little bit. Yeah, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, after yeah. that movie, but bullet time. Yeah. for the most part, those special effects, you know, from what I can, you know, reference to the Matrix, aren't mm-hmm. really used anymore. Whereas Jar Jar Binks and that that concept, that technology of the full digital character in a live action movie, right. did it did it did continue. And may, maybe right. You're, maybe you're right though that then Jar Jar was kind of the uncanny valley, and it was a safer bet. Yeah. Say, oh, right. really cool slow motion 360. Well, I, there, there, initially, there were three approaches to how Jar Jar was potentially going to be done. There was the idea of Ahmed Best in a um, uh, costume, and then there would be tracking markers that would uh, track the head, and so it would be his body, but um, we would replace the head. Uh, and then uh, the, the second... Uh, potential way of approaching it was to do motion capture, which was just really in its infancy at that point. And then the third approach was to do keyframe animation based on the reference of what Ahmed Best did. And it was ultimately decided to go with uh, keyframe animation. So, But I think um, it, it, w- it would have been very interesting to see the other two techniques applied. It, um, but uh, it, it, you know, that was the aesthetic that George was going for. He wanted uh, Jar Jar nudged just this side of sort of wacky and uh, able to – it's sort of like the comic relief that he, that he had in mind. He was the foil, right? That was, that was yes. his role. Yeah. Yeah, and, and yeah exactly. It, and we've discussed this, you know, ad nauseum on this program. <laughs> he does uh-huh. accomplish that to – Right. You know uh, – <laughs> As much as everybody hates it sometimes. Um, but, right. you know, and I, and again, to go on the record, I'm a big fan of Jar Jar. I like him. I defend it. I, you know, I see his value. And um, would you consider yourself one of the creators of Jar Jar? Do you take responsibility for it? You know, he was the, uh, I, I had the opportunity to, I, had, I, I really enjoyed the opportunity to animate on him and just see how far we could push it. Hmm. It was a great. Um, it was a great. And now it was a great uh, test to see what you could get away with from a design point of view, and it was sort of. It helped influence sort of my approach to design for all the movies that I've been a part of, in the sense that he had these eye stalks that sort of uh, jutted out above his head, mm-hmm. and um, and yet you still had to get expression out of them, and that's uh, always. Uh, and, and then you've given you given him sort of this uh, hadrosaur duck-like mouth, and then you gave him these uh, um, re- limbs that were a really funny shape. Like typically, the the length of the upper leg and the lower leg is equal, and yet from a design point of view, they had done all these uh, Terrell Whitlatch and Ian McKeg had done these drawings where the um, upper leg was shorter and the longer leg was longer. And it pre- gave us, presented us with some design issues. So it, uh, like I know there was one scene where he had to kneel down to um, uh, sort of uh, placate himself before Boss Nass and sort of, you know, say, 
you know, will you help the humans? You know, will we all work together? And he had to get down on one knee, but <laughs> because of his design, we had to. Uh, he kind of looked like Will Chamberlain. put a rock in <laughs> <laughs> so that his leg would uh, would would hit the rock because uh, if if we had to go all the way down, he would be tipped over. So. Uh, I can see that. But it, that, would, yeah. that would be a horrible action figure to play with. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So, what, what I, I guess what I, I find so interesting, um, and you know, there's certainly uh, uh, cycles that the visual effects goes through, but I, I find it so interesting that uh, the first Star Wars film, Star Wars: Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, you know, each won the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects, mm-hmm. and then the prequels. Um, didn't win, yeah. uh, and yet, and uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, Lord, uh, Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers, and Return of the King all won the Oscar for Best Visual Effects, and yet the three Hobbit movies didn't win either. Yeah. And so I, I, I'm always I'm fascinated by the idea of you know, do, uh, is it if the Academy is sort of like you know, okay, we've seen what you can do now, what can you do that's that's more interesting? That's that uh, t- sort of takes it to the next level. I I think they also just have a, they kind of have a hard. Um, it's really difficult for for them to kind of realize, you know, what is being accomplished. You know, I think yeah. and I think they get kind of caught up in kind of the buzz and maybe the success of them a little bit. Um, I think that's definitely what happened with the Matrix. It just kind of it kind of culturally hit. You know, it was, mm-hmm. um, and that's well, what got the voters it, going. It's very tricky in the sense that uh, I don't know if you remember, but like uh, I think it was, uh, I believe it was '87. So, uh, Predator and Harry and the Hendersons came out in the same year. Oh no! <laughs> and um, Predator was nominated for best visual effects, and Harry and the Hendersons was nominated for best makeup. And yet, it's uh, Kevin Peter Hall. It's the same guy in both suits. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it's, he's nominated, you know, so one is considered a, a makeup effect and the other was considered a visual effect. And, uh, and yet was it's there a the you know, same actor doing, do, you know, but playing <laughs> very different characters. And I always thought that was interesting just as far as like, uh, to your point of like, you know, how do you, how do you classify this? How do you, um, like Tron, when Tron first came out, it, it was um, ineligible uh, in 82 because the Academy didn't, know what to do with it it was you know it was like, almost considered like uh like yeah. like a like a cartoon like you know like is, you're using a computer in a in a way that hadn't been used before and yet you know tron was so groundbreaking at it for its time so um and you know I, we we can't think of of not using one now so it, it's interesting how things change and evolve well if anything tron should have warned us off it's a hellscape inside those computers. <laughs> You're right. Well, there's, there's so many years where it's, uh, I, and I've always been fascinated by this, is sort of like, um, uh, you know, 1979. You had, you know, Alien uh, 1, and, the, you know, the work was just incredible. Yeah. And then, but you also had Star Trek, the motion picture, and, and you know, and uh, Douglas Trumbull's work in that was just, you know, stunning. And uh, John Dykstra had worked on that as well. But, or, or 82, you have, you know, probably like one of the, the seminal years in the history of science fiction, along with you know 69, 68 or sixty nine, um, but the with two thousand one and Planet of the Apes and all that stuff. But with eighty two, you had you know Star Trek two, you had The Thing, you had E T, you had Blade Runner, 
And I know that Blade Runner lost to E.T. And I, at the time, I, that blew my mind because Blade Runner was so, the art direction of it was just so stunning. But then I realized, you know, E.T., it made you believe that this rubber, this little piece of rubber, you know, made you cry. It made you ball like a little kid, you know. (laughs) So it did its job. Plus, little known fact, same guy playing E.T., played Predator and Harry. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. And you can look it up later if you're listening. For the range. <laughs> yeah, but he's amazing and still no Oscar for him. He can Just play tall Oscar. and short. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's great. He's, he's classically trained. Kevin Baker Hall, but, I think. And, but I, I remember, uh, like, the thing and... Um, it, it was there was like came out you know I think it was just a few weeks after ET and you had like the you know the lovable uh, alien and then the thing came out and it was you know the absolute opposite of lovable and at, you oh, know yeah, bombing and Ooh. everyone was you know in love with the idea of this cute and cuddly alien and and yet the thing now is considered you know like one of the the best horror movies ever made so it's. Uh, I actually just I I just caught it recently at a at a midnight theater showing, and it was oh, really? a, it was a packed house. Of course, I I had never seen it in the theater. I saw it on VHS in, in the uh-huh. in the eighties. It was still uh-huh. unnerving. Yeah, I mean it's it's anybody listening if you've not seen the nineteen eighty John Carpenter thing, it's in my opinion one of the best science fiction movies period ever. Oh, it's I so mean, well done. Period. And I and I, I and I loved. Uh, I think on the I think it's on the DVD commentary. But the um, John Carpenter said, you know, there's two types of horror movies. There's the the one where the 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 threat is out there. It's mm-hmm. you know you're at a you're in a house and the threat is outside the house. Uh, and the other kind of horror movie is the threat is inside the house. And you know the thing is like you know it's inside the house and. You you don't but you don't know who the threat is and I thought that was just such a brilliant uh, um, approach to approach to it where you, you know you didn't know who who the thing was so and then oh, of course Robert and Kurt that, Russell's beard my God yeah <laughs> that was that was just just icing on top <laughs> that was so awesome but yeah that whole blood I've, I've test that, scene I can't remember if oh. that was four minutes long or like forty five minutes oh yeah I with just the, remember that being. With the hot hearing, poker? hearing oh. a clock somewhere in the other room ticking, watching that. So right. That just, right, right, right. Oh, it's and is it, is, it, is it true that uh, Kurt Russell is going to be in Guardians of the Galaxy too? I've heard that, but I don't know. Really? I mean, I, 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 I wish I knew more, but I'm sort of like I got so giddy when I read that because it's just I know that uh, you know uh, James Gunn is such a is a huge Kurt Russell fan, but just the idea of you know Kurt Russell being in Guardians of the Galaxy, I mean that's just too cool. Cause well, I actually it, in many to ways, know Guardians whether or not it's true. Reminds me of um, <laughs> Little Shop or not Little Shop Horrors, um, Big Trouble in Little China, which I just oh, love. Yeah. I love that movie so much. I love that movie so right? much. <laughs> you <laughs> know what you Jack Burton always says when the rains are coming <laughs> and the, you know yeah. the thunder's rolling. <laughs> I love that part. I love that guy. And you know he's um, you know he's so important to us culturally, right? I mean, he's, you know, and then there's Escape from uh, New York. That was another big yep. one for them. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know? There's yep. Overboard. Uh, again with John Carpenter. <laughs> Overboard yep. with Goldie Hawn. I'm just kidding. Yeah. No, I thought that was great. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It was funny. Was that movie one of the best college ever on screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, but you know, I love in uh, uh, Big Trouble is sort of the, you know, the one of the, I wouldn't say the first, but one of the introductions to uh, sort of like martial arts cinema, 
in in a way, you know, like their Enter the Dragon sort of really ushered it in. But I loved the idea that you know he was this uh, he was supposed to be the hero, but he was kind of this dullard while his you know yeah. his uh, sidekick was the one who was the real hero. I thought that was like a fantastic angle. I you know, and I, I don't. I mean, I can't remember there being such a like a science fiction fantasy kind of element to kung fu in quite the same way that it was in Big Trouble in Little China. There was a lot of right. I mean, there was there was you know there was the 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 Mortal Kombat guy you know with the yeah. you know yeah. the lightning and the you know with the 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 basket for a hat. Remember him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yep. And then the guy who could like inflate himself yeah. and uh... mm-hmm. oh and yeah and yeah yeah you mean like the like the like puffer fish guy. Yeah, like, yeah like he ended up just blowing himself just, up because he was still <laughs> freaked out. <laughs> and a that, and, uh, his, and his, a uh, beautiful Kim Cattrall, right? Wow, she oh, looked good just in that. Stunning in that. She oh. was stunning in that. Uh-huh. But I and but you see, I would go see movies, uh, sort of like you know, I would assign the auteur theory to visual effects artists. Like I was so into it. Like I would. Um, Richard Edland had done the electrical effects in Big Trouble in Little China. Well, he had done the electrical effects in Ghostbusters, which I loved. And he had done the electrical effects um, for that the Emperor uh, uses oh, to uh, electrocute Luke in Return of the Jedi. Well, this, this sounds so like it, Hollywood's go-to lightning. I started to follow um, <laughs> certain visual effects artists for sort of their style of uh, visual effects. They're like, bring in the lightning guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and wow. so, I, it, but I, I, I went and saw that movie. One of the reasons I went and saw that movie was, you know, visual effects supervisor Richard Edlund, because and I knew and I knew his work from Ghostbusters and uh, Return of the Jedi, and so it, it was sort of a. Um, How long have you that, been in this business, Glenn? <laughs> oh, geez. Um, I started in Ireland after I uh, did that test in '92. Uh, so twenty four years, twenty eight. Well, I, well, still, if I know years. my, if if I remember my release dates from the old IMDb, uh, mm-hmm. you were just going to see, uh, uh, big travel in Little China, back in the eighties, long before this was your profession, because yep. of an effects supervisor so, credit. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So you, yeah, I would, uh, I, I followed them. Uh, I would follow, you know, the work of uh, Dennis Miran and Phil Tippett. And there was even like a stop motion animator, uh, Tom Cinnamon, who I ended up, who I had the opportunity to work with on Hulk and and the Star Wars films. That I would, you know, you'd see the same names based on the movies that you would, you know, love. So you'd watch, you know, Raiders, and uh, and then you'd see the, you know, and Richard Edlund did the electrical effects for that when the 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 power of the arc is unleashed, and so. Uh, you start to follow the same people, like Tom Saint-Amand. There was like the coal car chase that was with the, the little puppets, and that was Tom Saint-Amand doing the stop-motion animation of those. And then uh, you'd just go see a movie like Howard the Duck, which you know wasn't a very good movie, but a lot the of effects lightning. in it were fantastic. Yeah. A lot of and the, But uh, still, the growing up, I never remember one friend of mine saying, oh, hey, man, are you going to go see the new Richard Edlund movie? Yeah, <laughs> it just it only strikes me as extreme. I mean, obviously, it's really well, paid I, off. I for knew you, that. But. I knew that the uh, I had crossed over to the other side when there was like Masters of the Universe came out. He Man and the Masters of the Universe, and Dolph Lundgren as He Man. But the visual effects supervisor was Richard Edlund, and sure enough, there was all these electrical effects. <laughs> there <laughs> was with that with that little key thing. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I totally remember so that. I, like, I, I went to go see that movie, not because of Dolph Lundgren, but because of Richard Edlund. And so it was sort of a, 
it was interesting that you'd, you know, you'd follow certain directors, but I mean, I would be following certain visual effects artists because of the, of their body of work. Now, I don't, I don't know if this particular name qualifies. I think he's more of a model maker, but something happened to us at Comic-Con and you were there. Um, yes. That Lauren uh, Peterson. Exactly. And it was, it was the yes. greatest. This is why you go this is why you go to Comic-Con, which what yeah. happened to us is why you go. So Grim and I were walking around, and we stopped at the Sideshow booth because I always walk by it, and I always stop. And then we start – I think we're looking at the Hot Toys, Millennium Falcon, and then – and yeah. we end up meeting you. And we start talking and all this stuff. And um, one of us points out that there's another booth. It's like a museum – um, collectibles. They're actually selling pieces, and they actually have a uh, Tanev Four um, model, which was using the yes. original uh, A New Hope. It's the first ship you see. This is yep. a very important piece in film lore. This is the model that they use, and so we're kind of talking about it. And sure enough, <laughs> Lauren Peterson walks by, or you point him out to us. Yes. Yeah, him, him himself and John Goodson were looking at the Hot Toys uh, one six scale Tie Fighter. And for and they, remember that we were just standing like right there people. next to the Millennium Falcon, <laughs> yeah. it was. Yeah, and so and um, oh, that was for, so great for all of you out there um, that are that are hearing this and you qu- you don't quite know who Lauren Peterson is. If you if you bought for the eighth time another version of the Phantom Menace and you bought it on iTunes. If you go on the Phantom Menace extras, Lauren Peterson is featured in one of the extras when they're talking about the models of the Phantom Menace. So he's actually in in a very recent release of a Star Wars movie. They feature him in it, and you can see him, and he looks exactly like he did that day when I saw him. So I can totally <laughs> vouch that that. It was like a yeah. 3D interactive special featurette on an iTunes version of yeah. Phantom Menace, and yeah. couldn't be happier. And I'm like, I know that guy. I met that guy. And so what? <laughs> and so what? What actually made this one even even better is that you introduce us to him, right? Yep. And you walk us over there, and we're talking to him about the exhibit that we just saw. And Lorne, you can see his eyes kind of rolling into the back of his head like, wait a minute. I, they actually have one here? And, you, <laughs> and so he's, he's actually counting how many of the models exist. And he's, he's yeah. actually, for a very brief moment, he's doubting that that's real. And then he right. goes, wait a minute. Um, and who was the actual model maker of that? Oh, I, you know, I can't remember. I, it can't was, remember I know that Bill... Bill George was like one of the top model makers at the old ILM, but uh, I, I, um, I who, can't remember. Um, he he actually pulls out a a a other name, and he said that that guy kept one of them. Mm-hmm. And and as it turned out, if you go back to that exhibit and you read the little brief on that particular model, it was his, which we he, did. And he, <laughs> he totally figured out where it came from, and he authenticated it for us. On the spot, it was amazing. It was an amazing, like, moment in geekdom for us, and to just kind of see all that happening, and to be able to talk to the man who. Well, it's like like if it was on Pawn Stars and you brought that in. <laughs> yeah, you would After bring a in commercial more. break. Yeah, you would have exactly. to bring in Lauren Peterson. He's <laughs> yeah. the only one who could look at it and say, "Okay, yeah, this is model 0008. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, and it was, yeah. Yeah, and I, I was just like, "Wow, that is why you come here. You have no idea." Well, 
who's right and next just, to you. And he has like the best stories. Like I know that like I had the opportunity to like we did a I did a lecture on Jurassic World at the the View conference in Torino, Italy, and Lauren Peterson was one of the guest speakers. And so I had a chance to you know completely geek out and you know like ask him all these questions and. You know, they were building, uh, he was telling me how himself and Phil Tippett were building the uh, Tauntaun um, stop-motion puppet. And they had to find fur that was really fine and really small uh, so that it fit the scale of the, of the, uh, the size that they were animating. And they found, you know, like the, the ideal fur was uh, like an unborn calf. And so, like, you know, How you can imagine the them hell did they to, like, find this them. out, Glenn? <laughs> you know, like, all these, like, slaughterhouses, like, are there any unborn calves lying around that we can get the fur? And they're like, wait, what do you want it for? Oh, so. technically they're all lying around. And I thought these yeah. slaughterhouses smelled bad <laughs> on the outside. <laughs> they ended up getting, like, uh, calf uh, fur uh, because, but it was, uh, but just the idea that they had to, like, you know the the craftsmanship that went into you know making stuff like that, and sometimes uh, what was interesting was was hearing about how it didn't always work. Like the 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 Rancor puppet was originally conceived as Phil Tippett wearing it as a suit, and uh, after you know like a lot of um, uh, test motion studies that they did that Dennis Muren filmed, it was just it it always looked like that. It looked like a guy in a suit. And then, so they, they came up with the crazy proportions where the Rancor has such really long arms. And, uh, that's, you know, Phil controlling the head and, and Tom St. Amand, uh, is controlling the, uh, the arms and they're in this confined little space. And then they shot it at, I believe it was uh, 96 frames per second in order to, to give it the proper weight. But, um, just, um, and you know, and it's probably one of my favorite movie monsters. Yeah, you know, yeah, along with awesome. yeah. yeah, so it's just you know. And uh, I actually just had a, I had a brief vision when you said that Phil Tippett was like in a Rancor costume, and I had a vision of a a video that a a very nice fellow showed us at uh, Comic Con. <laughs> When he was acting like yes. a velociraptor of some kind. Ah, yes. Yeah. That was me. <laughs> Can you tell us, uh, uh, did you happen to run into this fellow? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Funny enough, he was, uh, you know, a nice guy, but sort of a sad case. But, uh, <laughs> but it, you know, that was uh, one of those uh, great experiments. And, uh, you know, one of the you know really cool things about working at Industrial Light and Magic is that you you have this like wealth of um, history that you can refer to. You can, you know, Lauren Peterson would, you know, come in sometimes, you know, Bill George, he, um, you know, I worked with him on Star Tours. Like he designed, he helped to design the shuttle Tiderium. He helped to design the B-Wing. You know, that's why it's named the B-Wing. He, um, well, you got uh, a ship named that. Oh my God, that's awesome. And I love yeah, the B-Wing. There's a picture of him in the ILM book holding it up, uh, and um, the uh, maquette of the shuttle Tiderium model, uh, he was able to build it very, very quickly. And, and they, uh, um, that was the one that they used to build it full scale at uh, Pinewood Studios when they were, uh, when they were shooting. Um, but anyway, you, you, know, you, you, you can have these like, ideas and you can bounce them off you know, guys like Dennis Muren and John Knoll. And, um, so I had this idea. There were so many Raptor shots that we had to get through. Um, I knew that our animation team would be able to bang it out and make it look great, but it was sort of like with the 
amount of shots we had and what was required of the script and the fact that Colin was, uh, Trevorrow, the director, was, you know, so, you know, adamant, you know, like, well, what can we bring to the table that hasn't been done before um, that, you know, can maybe give us an edge and, and show us something that's, you know, visually distinctive from uh, what we've seen before. And so uh, one day I sort of got up, dressed up in the spandex, and I had done um, a lot of motion capture before. I'd had the opportunity to play C-3PO and, um, mm. uh, you know, various other Star Wars characters like Stormtroopers and so forth. Like uh, sometimes in the movies, sort of like sort of, these, these computer-animated characters, they're, they're you moving around. Yes, yes. And so, I mean, the, you, you have this technology available to you, and so it was sort of like, well, can you take a human and turn it into a dinosaur and without it looking like just a human in a dinosaur suit? And we took a lot of inspiration from the fact that um, a lot of the original Stan Winston studies have John Rosengrant uh, in this raptor suit, and the, the feet are kind of hidden, but when he's you know, bent over and he's got the tail and everything else, it, it looks pretty good. But I didn't <laughs> want the uh, performance to be encumbered by the weight of you know, the rubber and the latex and, and all this other stuff. Like, what if you had a performer that could be as athletic as possible uh, just wearing sort of the light spandex. And then um, uh, Kevin Woolley, who works in our uh, motion capture department, came up with the idea of globally retargeting the data so that it, I'm sort of hunched over a little bit in my performance, and then the computer uh, takes into account uh, how much forward I'm pitched, and so it makes my body parallel to the ground. <laughs> So in, in a way that a human being can't, or a human being can't for very long anyway, because we needed to be able to do these sustained takes and have the performers, uh, you know, work in these suits and do these performances for like, you know, three or four hours. And the data, the fidelity of the data was such that these, you know, 44 infrared cameras were picking up the shaking of my legs while I was trying to hold the pose. And so, <laughs> time to get to the gym, Glenn. <laughs> exactly. Definitely time. That was my workout, going and getting into that thing. And so, uh, but retargeting the data allowed you to see real-time raptors enveloped with textures, uh, you know, moving like dinosaurs in the shot. And then we ultimately ended up having our four performers in the volume capture area, uh, acting against each other, and now they're interacting. Now they're able to sort of work off of each other. Sort of, sort of like the the raptors are. We sort of reasoned that they would be very, you know, ornery and uh, like you know alligators or crocodiles. You don't want to get too. They don't want to invade each other's spaces. And so we could take advantage of that and have them perform off of each other instead of just capturing one performance at a time. So we had four raptors. Uh, in in the volume, and then I would play Chris Pratt, and I would you know do the whole thing where I'm trying to keep them at bay. You're trying to crowd. And it was great. We had cameras where we could see uh, the, them as the dinosaurs on TV from various angles, and uh, we had the plate photography that we could always refer back to, so we knew what the timing needed to be, and it was just a, a really fun uh, opportunity to see what we could get away with motion-wise, and I think like when Dennis Mirren saw it, he called it sort of the animation equivalent of jazz, sort of <laughs> in the sense that instead of doing blocked-out uh, keyframe animation, you can um, try different things and do various iterations and just experiment and do 
improv and you know see what different poses look like and inevitably when we i would yell cut they would come up out of their dinosaur pose and walk back to their start positions and then immediately it took you out of it and they looked like Barney the dinosaur <laughs> <laughs> and and everyone laughed you know but as soon as they got into even what we called sort of our default raptor pose which is sort of the the arms tucked back and the head kind of like a um, chicken <laughs> uh, yeah it, yeah exactly like a chicken and and a lot of and you know so much of that came from like you know talking to Phil Tippett and uh, also talking to uh, Jack Horner and you know how it was the coolest thing in the world you know like the top paleontologist uh, one of the top paleontologists in the world and just be able to like you know call him up or send him an email and uh, just ask him questions and, and always refer back to him because I thought it was really important that we let mother nature be sort of the visual anchor for what we were trying to create so that um, it didn't it always felt like something we've seen before meaning that we've never seen a dinosaur a living dinosaur but we've all seen a rhino or an elephant at the zoo so if it moved like a rhino or an elephant it would remind you that of something you've seen and so then it would feel more real if that makes sense and for those of you that haven't caught on, we're talking about Jurassic World, right? That's the one. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. yeah this is Jurassic World. Yeah. So, and um, um, so that the, I don't what forget. What was great was I'm that sorry, go ahead. the the science informed uh, a lot of the movement. Like I know one of the animators had a stegosaur lying on its side under a tree because he had found reference of like a um, a uh, a water buffalo doing the same thing. And I showed it to Jack Horner. I said, it doesn't quite feel right but i wanted to show it to you and he goes nope he says even though it's four-legged think of it as a as a bird so they would sit straight down like a chicken sitting on an egg and uh, or he would always talk about a t-rex you know they would sit straight down like a chicken sitting on an egg and i said but you know what would happen if it tripped and he goes well more than likely it'd be dead and i was like well wait a second jack i mean i've tripped a lot and you know animals typically trip i mean you mean that in a tripped animal mean a trip t-rex means like a death sentence and he would just say yeah well let me ask you this glenn if he, all the documentaries you've ever seen of uh, ostriches have you ever seen an ostrich trip and i was like uh no i haven't actually <laughs> <laughs> so uh so it was great to be able to sort of bounce these ideas off of them you know or it'd be like uh, have you ever seen a i said i asked him if there were any living birds that had the raised killing claw uh similar to what uh, our raptors have and without even missing a beat jack horner said red-legged sariyama i looked it up on google and sure enough there it is and it it, it uh, kicks uh, snakes to death with uh, with its claws and uh, it was and so i was like oh great we can use that so we would always be uh, referring back to um to the to the reference of the natural world Wow, that's amazing stuff! Yeah. And of course, we all know how good that uh, that. Or at the that least, was... we're all just going to take Jack Horner's word for it. Okay, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> this guy's really well, got a what's... scam running on us. I know. It's well, true. what's fun is to be able to like debate him, you know, because you know, like I, I'm sort of passionate about these ideas. I know that he always talks about uh, T about Rex as a, a scavenger, and I'm like. Well, wait a second. You know, yeah. in nature, like nothing that. is designed by accident. You know, wood. Uh, if you look at the teeth of a T-Rex and the claws, like it's like a, an unbelievable arsenal of like killing uh, to uh, take into account. And uh, 
you know, you've got these teeth that are like the size of bananas and they're, you know, sharp and thick. And I go like, you know, that would be a scavenger. And um, so I personally think they were more like lions, like they were opportunistic hunters, like they killed when they needed to. And but if they came across a, a dead animal, you know, they would more than take advantage of it, like with something you'd see on a hyena where they would like crush the bones and stuff like that. So but it was um Whenever I would debate him, I knew I'd be on the losing end of that argument. <laughs> but it was so, but it was it was it was fun to do because it's Jack Horner. So. Yeah, yeah, and you know we all saw how good that that that, that movie came out, right? I mean, it's it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's it, and oh, not yeah. exactly a low uh, budget uh, no. indie release or anything. <laughs> Working no, for the ILM, no. you do you do your bigger items. You know, before we get too far, you said that you played C three PO. I know, did. Like was it was this in a, uh, Attack of the Clones in the factory? This was actually for the Star Tours ride. Uh-huh. Uh, what, and what was really fun was that I had the opportunity to fly down to Disney, and um, I, you know Anthony, Anthony Daniels had you know it's 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 his character, and you know I very much wanted it to be to be uh, true to to the character that he created, and make sure that I didn't betray. You know all this, the hard work that he had done over these past few movie, movies because C-3PO moves in a very distinct way, mm-hmm. and uh, so I had the uh, the afternoon to uh, you know pick his brain and talk to him about specific shots. And what we ultimately real what I ultimately realized was that it's the constraints of the costume defined the performance, huh. meaning that we couldn't I couldn't just get out there on the on the motion capture stage in just the spandex outfit. I needed to be wearing something that restricted my movements because that's what Anthony Daniels had to deal with. He couldn't turn his head without turning his, his torso. He couldn't uh, turn his head, he couldn't tilt his head very much. Uh, he, couldn't he had those like little bars much. on his elbows, so he couldn't Yeah, really... exactly. <laughs> he couldn't uh, bend his arms he, uh, yeah. too much because of the, those, those bars that connected his upper arm to his lower arm. And um, that scene where he um, has to, where he says, you know, I'm going to I'm going to regret this. Where he gets into the uh, escape pod, mm-hmm. and he has to bend over. Like he couldn't breathe for those scenes because the that plate was Pitching digging his. into his uh, <laughs> stomach. So for each take, he would hold his breath. And so, but it also defined like how far he could bend over. So where we it's, it was sort of like taking advantage of what did for him. And making sure that we didn't make him too um, athletic or um, uh, you know loose in the way he moved, and so I, I put on like a, a neck brace, and I put on you know hockey pads, and I put on you know anything that helped uh, restrict my movement, and then all of a sudden it, it felt more like C-3PO. So whenever we're on the Star Tours ride, and this is at uh, um, it's California. At World, uh, I believe it's uh, in uh, Hong Kong, I believe, uh, and I think it's coming to Paris. Um, but yeah, that's for the the pre-show part of the ride. That's uh, that's me. Hey, we just met C three PO. How about that? Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> Keep, keeping lots of frustrated park goers busy when they stand in long winding lines. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and that's what was so much fun working with the Imagineers was that it's a different set of rules to the um, uh, classic sort of cinematic storytelling uh, rules that you have. Uh, I know that there was a scene where 
the um, the Star Tour ship comes out of the out of the spaceport and then roars ahead into uh, hyperspace. Well, it has to resettle uh, before it uh, does that. And I wanted a um, spiral galaxy that reminded everyone of the end of The Empire Strikes Back. And if you see the spiral galaxy in that shot, it's at a Dutch angle. It's sort of it sort of cuts across the frame. It, it isn't parallel to the, the top and the bottom of the frame. And so I had initially put it in at an angle. And the one of the Imagineers said, you can't do that because the... Um, the gimbal has to reset and settle uh, parallel to the ground. And if you show the audience something that's angled, but they're feeling something that's parallel, you're immediately going to make them motion sick because there's a, dis- there's a disconnect between what the eyes are seeing <laughs> and what the body's feeling. And so it was constantly making those adjustments to uh, make sure that you, people enjoyed the ride, but it didn't make them feel uncomfortable. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was. You it just, was. You just it, never think of how much goes. I mean, every single thing is so meticulously put together. You oh know, yeah. Well, I mean, the well, imagine, first I few mean, people throw up on your ride, you'll you'll, yeah. <laughs> you'll crack the code. But, yeah. well, and, I get, right. and I get more motion sick than anyone, and so I was, you know, uh, definitely afraid of of uh, making something too um, uh, too dynamic. And uh, and then of course there were the different uh, planets that you go to, and I selfishly. Uh, held on to Hoth because uh, you know that my childhood was sort of defined by the you know the snow battle, and so I uh, I had the chance to animate the, uh, <laughs> the snow walkers and the snow speeders and uh, um, we had the opportunity to bring in John Berg who along with Tom Sainamon and Phil Tippett um, created that sequence, and we uh, we didn't tell him we were get, you know what it was we just showed it to him. And he asked to see it again, and he ultimately ended up watching it eight times. Wow. And uh, he came over afterwards and gave me a big hug, and he says, like, I never thought I'd see the Hoth battle again like that. And, you know, so, I mean, that doesn't get any better than that. Uh, I, I, um, for those of, for Southern California residents, the best time to go to Disneyland is during school (laughs) and on a rainy day. At three in the morning. <laughs> no, you gotta <laughs> go. You know, like, and uh, I got to go. Uh, I've only I've, I've been to Disneyland many, many times, but only once did I go after the new Star Tours, and mm-hmm. I must have gone on Star Tours five times. You know, oh, and, wow! And it was five different. Um, no, I think one thing I saw again, but it was like four uh-huh. different, you know, rides basically or mm-hmm. stories. Uh huh. You know, places I guess, and it was. Yep. It's amazing, and you know for. For years, it was the same exact thing, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. For yeah. years. For 20 years, it's the same exact thing. And now it's you get a new experience every single time. Chances are you will get a new experience every single time. And yep. It, yeah. Yeah. And it was, and it was uh, designed to be modular. Uh, and that was, you know, George specifically asking for that. And they uh, ended up doing that. So when Episode 7 came out, they created that new... Uh, module where you go to Jakku now yeah. and you fly around the uh, the boneyard of all of the downed uh, star destroyers and um, you know the, the timelines are a little messed up but it was always a question of if you go to Hoth do you want to be true to the timeline or do you want to be in the battle of Hoth 
because we debated endlessly. You know, you talk about, you know, these, these nerdy conversations that people have at water cool. You can imagine the debates we were having, you know, at Skywalker Ranch. Like, well, wait a second. We can't have the Millennium Falcon fly out of Echo Base because C-3PO is flying the Star Tours. Uh, ship, but he's also supposed to be aboard the Millennium Falcon, and now he's in two places at the same time. And we're, you know, and I could, so. I could totally see myself digging into one of that to to one side of that conversation, like yeah. <laughs> hardcore. I would have been so dug into what to. I'd have been like, he's not even there. That doesn't make any sense at all. Don't you understand right. what's going on? Yeah, I would have been on that like crazy. It's that's mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah, no, that, that that part of it was so much fun. Is like you know now you're starting to. You know, contribute to sort of the the, the um, canon in a way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and and I was uh, lucky enough to uh, design one of the troopers. So there was a uh, uh, George and had sort of come up with this idea of these like uh, stormtroopers with jetpacks that would sort of accompany Darth Vader, and um, so I had sort of took the stormtrooper design and adjusted a little bit and changed the striping and and uh, we took the a respirator on the front of the TIE pilot, uh, TIE fighter pilot, and then we took Boba Fett's backpack and added that, and then changed the color of it, and uh, boom, you've got a new stormtrooper. And I thought, well, he's got to sort of begin begin with an S because you got sand troopers and snow troopers and stormtroopers, and he's in the sky. So ah, what the hell? And I just wrote Sky Trooper in the top corner in pencil. And uh, then when we had a chance to have the go to the premiere at um, the Star Wars Celebration when it opened, I went. In, I exited through the gift shop and it's like, get your exclusive, you know, pack of Darth Vader and Sky Tripe. Oh, you got Sky it! Tripe. It's yours! Oh my god! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's awesome! Man, congratulations! I, I met a guy in line and he, I was telling him about it and he, he made a Sky Trooper uh, costume and it got vetted by the 501st and he sent me a picture of it and it was I, I can't tell you how satisfying that was to be, you know, like drawing something and being such a fan of, of Star Wars. And then, you know, here you see this this drawing is, is actually well, and become a... Well, and if, a, if a, a it gets husband. accepted into the 501st, they only accept, like, real canical, you know, like, you know, it, it has to be a part of the canon for them to, like, accept them into right. the ranks. Well, what if they hadn't accepted it, though? Then then would this guy oh, have to get know. a hold of you and have you go straighten them yeah. out? <laughs> yeah. I I don't know. I don't know that uh well it was um it was one of those things where you know everyone was you know contributing so much and I was just lucky enough to you know um Bill George was the visual effects supervisor on it and he had worked on the original Star Wars ones and he was like you know you know play with it so it was um it, it was so much fun to you know to be a part of it in that respect and now all of a sudden you know you had people asking you questions and you're like oh geez you know this is a big deal you don't you don't realize it at at the time so um, oh, but like I, I'm fascinated now by all the uh, incredible new designs of the the first order uh, troopers that you know the snow troopers and then you've got like the flame troopers like the guys with the flamethrowers and the, like just those amazing Shouldn't they be designs. So flamethrowers? <laughs> You're right. They should be so flame. <laughs> so flame troopers or something? Yeah. <laughs> I don't this know is what J. J. Abrams think he is taking away the S moniker. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. I don't know what else. I'm not sure what else it could be. The uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. But spark the, uh, troopers or the 
Spartan <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm actually glad that you brought up the new movie because, you know, we're going on an hour here. We're we're going to yeah. let you go soon. Um, sure. But I do I do want to get your kind of thoughts on the new movie. And, you know, we're when we met you last July, you know, obviously yes. we we're all dreaming about this movie and thinking about this movie and just wanting this movie to happen. It it happened. We were there. My thoughts are, you know, <laughs> I'm, I have come to grips with 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 my thoughts of it. I'd love to know yours. What did you think about the whole experience of seeing this movie? And and also, how much of it did you kind of know of ahead of time? Did you kill I'm... Han Solo, Glenn? <laughs> was that you? <laughs> was that your idea? I was. Uh, yeah, I personally am responsible for. It. <laughs> so I uh, um, I knew about it, but I um, I was so uh, much into Jurassic World at the time. I, I um, Paul Cavanaugh uh, was the animation supervisor along with uh, Michael Ames in, in Island London, but then also uh, Roger Guyette was the overall visual effects supervisor who I had the chance to work with on uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, and I knew they were doing incredible things with it. And so I would see snippets of what they were doing. And what I found so exciting was, um, you know, I fell in love with Star Wars. You know, growing up in Calgary, Canada, I waited for four hours in the sun to go see Return of the Jedi at the Palace Theater. Um, and uh, I got that same feeling when I was, like, watching certain sequences in this one. And so, you know, the idea – and I think that – the. Um, that feeling resonated with a lot of people in the sense that it, it, it made them like they felt like kids all over again, where it reminded them of the original Star Wars. And so much of it was, um, I know that uh, uh, Kathy Kennedy made a point of, you know, putting all her, you know, the ducks in a row. You know, it's like we're going to get Lawrence Kasdan uh, and J.J. to write it. We're going to, along with um, uh, Michael Arndt, who did uh, uh, Little Woman's Sunshine, is it? I think so. Um, but the, uh, you know, we're going to get John Williams to do the music. We're going to get, uh, you know, we're going to use Ralph McQuarrie's original designs in conjunction with Ian McKegg and Doug Chang and Eric Tiemens and Ryan Church. And um, it just, they, they put all of the best people who are just part of Star Wars, you know, they, they just know Star Wars backwards and forwards. And uh, when you see Han Solo, for example, or when you hear that uh, classic TIE fighter roar yeah. or the sound of the Millennium Falcon. I mean, even those sounds I thought was, it was amazing to me, like how much that resonated with, with you as um, like reminding you of your childhood when you just, you know, hear those sounds and hear that music, which I just thought was fantastic. And I think it, it made people, um, you know, fall in love with Star Wars again, Yeah. Um, which, which I think was, it, it was always there because I, I, what I've always noticed, and I think you, you guys have probably gotten a sense as well, like when you go to San Diego Comic-Con, there are certain fads of characters that, you know, dress up uh, each year based on whatever movie has, you know, come out. Uh, but every year I've only seen more of people dressed up as stormtroopers and more people dressed up as Jedi. Um, and, like, that has never waned. But I think what's been so much fun now is to see that like a whole new generation, uh, see a star Wars movie on the big screen. You know, that's, I, I forgot that, you know, the prequels had come out, you know, so long ago and now you're seeing there's, you know, uh, 
12, 13, 14-year-olds that are, are seeing a Star Wars movie on the big screen for the first for the time. Screen. Yep. And then yeah, and yeah. there's 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 still plenty more to come on the big screen for all yeah, of us, even exactly, kids getting born yeah. now. I think they're making one right now over in the yep. old England. Speaking yep. of which. Oh, wait a minute. Didn't Weren't you in England for a while? And we couldn't get I all, was in England. I was not part of... Part of that, I was uh, part of another project, but oh, the lies, um, the lies, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> but I the understand you had to sign something, but so come much on. Fun is that I've had the opportunity, like uh, I've I become good friends with uh, Colin Trevorrow, and uh, you know to hear the enthusiasm in, in Colin's voice, you know, just talking about how how good uh, episodes eight and nine are going to be. I just, you know, I, oh I just God. get giddy at the idea of you know, the audience um, experience in it. And it's, um, it, you know, that, that for me is, is going to be just, just so amazing is, is to see, you know, how the audience is received. And not only that, but like Rogue One. I mean, what did you guys think of the Rogue One trailer? Oh, my God, it looks so amazing. I mean, when you see right? the one guy in the cloak, like, he like kneels and you see the two Imperial Guards. Um, yeah. I'm like, who's the, is, is, do you know, is that Darth oh, Maul? the questions. Is that Darth Maul? You know, Maul? I don't know. Oh, my God, it's got to be Darth I, Maul. I, I, would, I would love to be able to say if I knew, but I don't. I, <laughs> all I know is, is that the when, it, when I saw Rogue One, I was, it, you know, again, it's the nostalgic quality yeah. of seeing these, like, AT-AT walkers, and it seems to, to really get to the heart of, like, the war of Star Wars yep. in a way that we probably, you know, haven't experienced. And I, um, I also like the idea of, you know, the Jedi are these, you know, ethereal characters like the Knights of Old that you hear about, but you don't see them. You don't see them. And they're, but these are the grunts who are in, you know, in the trenches and, uh, um, you know, they're, they're, they're the rebels and you're be like following around, you know, a squad of rebels and, you know, the Jedi aren't uh, going to always be there. So I, I love that, that idea. Yeah. You know, you're following another group. Uh, within the Star Wars universe, so I'm, you know, super excited with it. I know Gareth is just the biggest Star Wars fan, and I know that John Knoll, who's like the head of the, you know, sort of the creative side of things at Industrial Light and Magic, he, uh, it was his original story concept. Yeah. He he came up with the uh, the idea for it. And it's so. I I think it's going to hit. I think it's going to be a huge hit. I, I I actually attended his panel at uh, the celebration last year. Uh -huh. And Gareth Edwards says, you know, it is called Star Wars, right? <laughs> and he really, he really emphasized the war part. And I guess the uh, production designer was the same guy from Saving Private Ryan from the first scene of that, or something. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, oh, wow. So I'm surprised you didn't know that, Glenn. Yeah, uh, that I got I you, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. And and so like you're, you know, we're. We're going to see a war movie here, like a real war that's movie. That's what that's what that's how it, what it feels like to me, and that, and that's what I'm glad that they. When I saw the trailer, it it it, uh, it felt like it, you know, and and you, uh, and they've also sort of uh, Gareth has very much embraced the idea of, you know, JJ's idea of um, you know building out those sets, you know, like there's that one shot where you're you're, you're following uh, um, them through the hangar, mm -hmm. and you know, like that. That yep. was all built, you know, like what, whatever you see, like that. And you that's, see like the like rebel trooper and you see the, the yep. gonk droid and you see yep. an X-wing and you're like and you're in the Y wings and yeah. stuff like that. And uh, you, 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 there's a there's a 
what I what I also love is the, you know getting back to the the grittiness of the mm-hmm. the Star Wars universe. I always loved the idea of the spaceships being dirty uh, and rusted blasted. and dirty yeah. covered in grime and yeah, yeah blast yeah. covered in blast marks and you and get space like exactly. grease on your fingers when you work on it yeah. right? <laughs> it's under your fingernails <laughs> let you know you're alive yeah. boy absolutely <laughs> that's that's what it's all about yeah did you uh what, what were what were the moments in um in episode 7 that sort of made you guys um sort of realize you know realize that it was everything you had hoped or I, or, or, or what were the moments that made you guys re- realize, yes, this is a Star Wars movie? See, I, I'm actually on, in, in line with you because I think my my biggest, like what gave me my biggest Star Wars chubby when I was watching <laughs> it was uh, the, all the, mo- it was, I got to see Han Solo and Chewbacca fly the Millennium Falcon again. Yeah. Right. Total, you, know? you were, you were I mean, into the nostalgia. The, exactly. Yeah. It was all those things I was like, yes, this is what I wanted more of. And I realized that. Mm-hmm. And if if I did feel the prequels weren't what I was expecting, it's because mm-hmm. I didn't get that. I didn't get a Death Star blowing up. I didn't get the Millennium Falcon. I, I didn't see. get AT-ATs and, yeah. and, and walkers. It was – but they're back, you know. Right. Yeah. Well, I think you, you have a, a generation of filmmakers that are now our age – that it, it it means so much to them that they want to make sure to make it a part of of what they what meant so much to them what meant you know what Star Wars meant to them as kids. Well, so me, I I, I I finally got to um, I watched it ten times in the theater. Okay. Oh my god. Ten Good times. For you. And I loved it every single time. And you know I would go with different people because everybody knows how much I love it. And so a lot of people waited for me to go with them. You know they were. You know, these are people that could actually wait. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so, you know, they were like, hey, I, I I, haven't seen Star Wars yet. Do you want to go with me? And so, you know, I I went with probably six different people to see it ten times, you know. Wow. A couple of people went with me to see it a, a couple of times. But anyway, um, the one part that um, I finally saw, I finally, you know, I bought the Blu-ray. I pre-ordered it. I got it. And it just kind of mm-hmm. stayed there. I didn't watch it. I uh, it came with a download, a digital download, and, uh, you know, I, I finally watched it, and it, it got to me again. This is the part that I really love the most, and it's, it really has a lot to do with what I feel is my understanding of the myth, the mythos of the Force itself, and what my mm-hmm. understanding of it is in the Star Wars context. And um, mm-hmm. just the part with Rey at the, you know, when she's fighting Kylo, and they're, 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 they're locked at the saber and there's that mm-hmm. moment where she has to, where she thinks of Maz Katana and you have to, you know, close your eyes and feel it and let it, you know, it's all around you. There's that moment and the force music, the John Williams force music comes on and I'm, yep. I'm, I'm getting a little touched. I'm getting touchy, right? Now. I'm getting like my, my eyes water, you know, like I, it, I feel like the force awakens in me in those moments. And, uh-huh. you know, it, it's personified in that particular scene, but it's it's really throughout. You know, it's a metaphor. You know, the actual name of it, "The Force Awakens." It's mm-hmm. it's not just in the movie. It's the Force awakened in all of us watching right. it at the same time. And I man, I just it really loved it. I loved. I, it. I know that when I was at the the View conference in in Italy, and there was you know um, 
uh, Mark Osborne, who directed Kung Fu Panda, and uh, Jorge Gutierrez, who did Tree of Life. They were a uh, Book of Life, I should say. And they were they were saying, you know, like they weren't they knew that I couldn't talk about it, but they're like, you know, is it you know is it good? And I said, guys, you're going to be blown away. There are like six or seven stand up and cheer moments. Huh. Yeah. And I won't tell you when they are. And Jorge was very much in the, the camp of, oh, I've been burned too many times. I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to get my hopes up. And I went, okay, all right, you give me a call on December the 19th and tell me. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, I had a chance to touch base with him. And, you know, he was just so overjoyed. You know, like there's so many moments like when, the saber flies through oh. the air and goes to and Ray, it's the, and it's and it's in the snow and it comes out and you you yeah. also get like this, it's it's obviously a homage to Luke being suspended in the in the in the ice the cavern in, in yep. the in the ice cavern and he has to call yep. the force to get it so there's there's like that but you know I'm thinking of the sword in the stone and you know King you mm-hmm. know. Uh, is it Lancelot or is it King Arthur? Uh, it's King Arthur. King, King Arthur. Take that, and yeah. he has to take it out, and um, you know, like all that stuff, and it's it just oh, it's that's, so oh, powerful. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Well, here, 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna blow your mind again. If you okay. remember that story, it I think King Arthur ends up losing the sword. It does I don't think it's killed or so. Anyway, and it ends up getting returned to the lady in the, the lake. lake. Yes. And yeah. Maz Katana lives on a lake. Ooh. Boom. Ah. I blew your mind. Oh. That, I hadn't heard that. She's, she's in a castle, right? Yeah. But on, okay. on a lake. On a lake. Yeah. And, and then the lady it. in the lake hands the sword to the next. Right. See, I'm and on this. Her, I'm on this. Katana is, uh, of course, a Japanese samurai sword. For, for, a name for a sword. Boom. So her last name is, is sword. And Maz is the ancient Indian word for corn. No, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> we're reaching. I like it, but we're, we're, we're trying, though. Yeah, yeah, we're trying. Oh, man. This is, um, oh, my god. But, gosh. yeah, that's what I, I um, there were so many uh, moments there that I thought they just, the, they hit just perfectly. It was, yeah. it was note perfect. Uh, and, um, or, and, but also, like, the fun and the humor they, they brought back to it. And also, um, how much of a badass Ray is. She doesn't oh, need rescuing. She I love doesn't. That. Uh, love it. And, and yeah, that was a fun the, angle. You know, she, she's an amazing pilot. It's not you know. It's not just uh, Poe Dameron. You know. So I, I thought, you know, all of that was just uh, uh, fantastic. You know, it, it's and it was obvious that from you know like the the Hunger Games uh, that there are you know you know female heroines that are mm-hmm. you know just as interesting as uh you know luke skywalker and so for uh, i think that's that's been uh, a great leap forward for for the films as well I, I think that is that's one of the greatest accomplishments of that film and i think the only thing that can be second to it is the fact that this whole entire movie is about luke skywalker and he's in mm-hmm. it for five seconds Right. Isn't yeah. that amazing? Just, just to underline yeah. the whole everything else going on. That's, it's that was amazing. A, that was a pretty cruel trick. I know, but I was yeah. I was completely satisfied with that much Luke. Like I mean, it was completely about him and all, also mm-hmm. doesn't it give us all like I I remember walking out of Attack of the Clones and I remember thinking to myself, 
see Phantom Menace haters, see how good this movie is. And I was thinking because you just saw Yoda finally, right? Right. You finally saw Yoda get down. And mm-hmm. it, was, it was amazing. And, mm-hmm. you know, we still have to look forward to a full-on Jedi Master Luke Skywalker. That's exactly. going to come. So, you know, they, they, they were able to build off of the legend of Luke Skywalker. They actually literally treated it like a legend, and they they build up the, they built this whole movie around finding him. They they they, they spoiler they find him, and, <laughs> and, and and the whole movie's about him, and he's just barely barely in it. And and yeah. so it it fulfilled all of that. Yet we have so much to look forward to with him. And Mark Hamill, by the way, looks great with a beard. Another Doesn't great he? beard. And if I'm not mistaken, like I think I read it somewhere, he's the same age that Alec Guinness was oh when he God. played Obi-Wan Kenobi in the original Star Wars. How is that even possible, right? No, that, that, that cannot be true. Yeah, he's like 64 or something. Yeah. Or, yeah. He's the same age as Alec Guinness was. In, yeah. In, it's, this is... That's ridiculous. I don't, I, don't, I don't buy that for a second. <laughs> it's, you're it's, right. It's a little salty. You know, when you, you know, our generation imagines, you know, Luke is in one way, you know, but when you, and, uh, uh, you know, there's so many things that I find interesting was that, like, um, BB-8, for example, mm-hmm. it sort of is like, okay, you know, how are you going to make something as cute, as iconic, as endearing as R2-D2? And damn it, if they didn't, you know, do it, <laughs> no, you know. Yeah, it's awesome. good. Yep. Yep, and I and I thought that was you know just uh, fantastic the the idea that all of a sudden now you had you know everyone in uh, falling in love with uh, uh, this this another little droid character and what I found so funny was that I was at the Critics Choice Awards and uh, earlier in the year um, Jurassic World didn't win but uh, <laughs> terribly sorry <laughs> yeah, to hear that <laughs> but I had a chance to go and what was so interesting was that John Knoll got up to receive the award for um, ILM's 40th anniversary and BB-8 came out on stage um, to sort of uh, say say hi to John and what was amazing was here are all these like top movie stars that were sitting in, in the t- at the tables in front of me and all of a sudden they're all now pulling out their cameras <laughs> and taking pictures <laughs> of BB-8 you know like it was it, everyone loves that character, and so that was that was really fun to see. Is that you know it's he he's uh, you know like it's 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 such an amazing uh, new I, fun character. I, so I, so what kind of droid are you designing for the new movie? <laughs> I'm not designing anything uh, right now. I'm oh, close. Close. Are you circling the drain there? I <laughs> how I designed Indominus, uh, work, working in conjunction with. Uh, uh, Legacy Studios and also the art department here, but uh, you—I know you guys are in a Star Wars uh, kick, but uh, what's uh, uh, You can tell us a little bit about it. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's—I'll just say that it, it was a lot of fun. But I know that as much as possible, uh, we didn't want a creature of fantasy. We wanted to ground her in dinosaurs that actually existed. So mm-hmm. for me, it meant a lot of research looking at um, what they call the abelosaurs, which were these theropods from Patagonia uh, that had a specific look to them. And what was really cool about them is that they had these really uh, horny, bony osteoderms and nodules on their heads, like they were sort of show-off. But they would really, they had these really dynamic-looking faces. And they, so what was fun was incorporating sort of this crocodilian texture along the length of Indominus and uh, 
So it just gave her like a different look because she was going to be um, white, but then how do you you know build texture and character into that skin? So that was a really fun part of it. And then the other fun part was uh, I had shown pictures to Colin of um, a saltwater crocodile which had uh, interlocking teeth, whereas uh, typically the theropods like uh, T. Rex and Allosaurus they had the 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 top uh, jaw the teeth. Um, overlap, they hung out over, but you didn't see the under teeth. And so I thought this would be like a great opportunity to make her look sinister because you saw the teeth on the outside like you would on a crocodile. Mm. Um, and then, of course, you want to make her mean, but you don't want to make her cartoony. Uh, and yet when you look at the stare of an eagle or a rattlesnake, they look mean, <laughs> even though they're they're not. It's just the it's the angle of their brow and the the shape of their eye, and so it was uh, incorporating the the shape of her eye and the angle of the brow ridge over her eye, so that she didn't have to do any expressions. She just naturally had a had a a sinister look to her. And then, of course, we gave her like horns uh, on top of her head, which is based on an abelosaur named a, a Carnotaurus. So they actually did have horns on their head. So like um, it was trying to make sure that we didn't do anything that reminded someone of a dragon, but it was uh, making sure to show, uh, create a dinosaur that was as iconic as a T-Rex, but visually very distinct from it, because, of course, they had to fight uh, had at to the end. Bigger. Spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you had to know who was who. So. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with dragons, but all right, I get what you're saying. <laughs> no, awesome. no, that's absolutely nothing. It's just, uh, yeah, when you're making your dinosaur movie, you got to make sure that it doesn't look too fantasy-like. So, but wow. uh, this is but that, oh my gosh. That, that's probably been for the, like the most fun. And what I think is so fascinating with Star Wars is it sort of walks that uh, edge between fantasy and science fiction. You know, you'll have. Yeah. A, um, a bodyguard with a spear, and then you add a couple of lights to it and some wires, and all of a sudden it's Star Wars, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like yeah. a Gamorrean guard, he, he's very much a creature of fantasy with his uh, pig face and his uh, armor, and then all of a sudden you give him, like, this futuristic axe, and uh, he feels like he's part of Star Wars. And so I, I love that that look, the, the combination of, uh, you know, like um, ancient and, and modern. I mean, Boba Fett is essentially... You know, this helmet is, you know, Teutonic Knight, and then you just add some lights to it, and you've got something that looks, uh, you know, timeless, which is why I think the the designs have aged so well. Like, if you look at the Stormtrooper costumes, they look just as cool as as they did in, um, you know, 77, and yet so many other designs uh, have not aged as well, and they, they feel of their time, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I'm with you on that. Uh, well, how, how have you applied this to uh, what you've designed for Episode Eight? <laughs> <laughs> if uh, I had designed something for episode eight, uh, I uh, I'm sure it would incorporate all the timeless uh, designs that uh, have been done by so many amazing artists in the past. Right, we're well, not well, going to crack them. So well, you, you know what? And I, I actually have a quick thought on all that because going back to the prequels, um, when you when you have this when when you have this. Um, when you go back to the prequels, the the clones were obviously all done by computer, right? Yes. Right. And so there was something very odd and very different about the clones because you know, they were all exactly the same, obviously, because they're clones. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so the just the just the fact that they were present that they were all created by computer and they were all you know created they were all modeled exactly the same. It did, it gave the overall appearance of the clone troopers. Um, I mean, it just it made it all very odd and very weird, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and I think that that's kind of the that's the you know that kind of that kind of shows you the brilliance behind you know a guy like George Lucas who can kind of think of this kind of stuff and just say no, we should make the clones basically all the same, and it's going to be mm-hmm. weird and odd when you see it on the screen, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's not going to have that same kind of lived-in approach because these are all freshly made. <laughs> You know, it's like right. a dozen eggs. You know, like it's, right. it's all going to look the same. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, that was—I have to say—it was, um, you know, one of the the great thrills to be able to, you know, work for George on on the Star Wars films. And like Episode Three, I had a chance to um, work on General Grievous. And um, you, um, before our, like the team got started animating him i wanted to sort of explore who the character was so i had done a lot of sketches um and then after dailies one time i was able to um get a moment where uh and pull him aside where and just spread all the drawings out on a table and just say you know before we dive into the animation uh we've seen the concept art you know as far as poses go you know what would general grievous do what wouldn't he do you know who is his character and uh, and it was great because you know and then George was sort of like oh I like this I like this pose I don't like this pose and like I don't think he would ever do this and um, you sort of almost get like caught in the moment where you're you sort of you're listening to him you know in part what he's trying to tell you about who this character is but meanwhile you're thinking like wow I'm talking about a creating a Star Wars villain with George Lucas and oh. Crap! What did he just say? <laughs> you know, oh so, you're probably just like looking at him, like with your elbows on the desk, and you're right. You know, you're, <laughs> you're kind of heads tilted, and you know, you have I love oh, yeah, you on your eyelids. Exactly. But seriously, yeah. what did he say, Glenn? I mean, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. it but it was uh, so. But for him to you know sort of to take the time and and uh, you know work with us uh, like that to to create the character was just. Uh, invaluable and, and and so much fun you know because it's it's uh um, he, you know he's himself and uh steven spielberg and you know stanley kubrick i mean those those are the guys that i admired so much you know as a kid and then coming up through film school and then getting a chance to work with them uh has just been uh well hey man we think that you are absolutely living the dream um i think uh if i had one final question for you it's sure you know what are you making now? <laughs> you know, what are you working on next? And is there something else that you're kind of hoping to still, you know, accomplish? What kind of things would you like to see in the next, you know, couple of years? You know, I've been so lucky to uh, be a part of uh, Jurassic World and the Star Wars movies and, uh, um, you know, to work with uh, directors like, you know, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and Ang Lee and Colin Trevorrow and, you know, whatever comes after this now i mean that's i look forward to it and i i but it's I, i've been very very lucky to to work with the best in the world so it's uh i, I look forward to to more of that because i find that the most interesting like this collaborative effort of of not just working with them but uh the artists that you get a chance to meet uh, you know within ilm and uh you know the other studios the people on set 
you know, your what was amazing was that on um, uh, uh, Jurassic World it was uh, Chris Pratt's um, birthday, mm-hmm. and we had a chance to uh, on set to you know wish him a happy birthday, and so we all sang happy birthday for him. And uh, Chris Pratt like just could not have been a nicer guy, and he just said, you know, you're all here because you know you love what you do and you're some of the best in the world at what you do and what you're working on will live far beyond you and that you couldn't believe like just how much that meant to all of us yeah. and so and that's sort of how i feel about how the um, uh, the approach to how we you know we're, we're lucky enough to to get to make these movies because when you go to places like comic-con you see how much it means to people yeah, and so and you know how how happy it makes them and how passionate they get about it and uh, so what's fun is the idea that, you know, you're just as passionate and you want to make it great for them, you know. So, um, yeah, I, fingers crossed I get to work on uh, more Star Wars films and more Jurassic films and uh, uh, any other uh, cool projects. Any other crazy idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. And the Marvel films. I mean, I haven't, we haven't even talked about the Marvel films that um, uh, ILM has been, you know, working on. Like Civil War comes out in two weeks and it just it looks incredible so yeah did you did you work yeah. on that i my 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 friends did uh but uh the uh, as a fan of of marvel comics and you know i grew up reading john Byrne and um you know loving his style and and uh, john Buscema and and john romita and loving all those different styles it's sort of a, it's a great time to be in love with comics yeah. uh right that now because true. you know every year now you're getting these incredible movies and so uh uh, yeah, I'm super excited for uh, for Civil War. Man, so mm-hmm. I mean, you get to geek out with us. You get to participate in this. You get to be a part of it. I mean, and you know, uh, speaking for you know all of us out there in the uh, pop culture fandom, we didn't give you license to do that, Marky. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but go ahead. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a little liberty here and just say, man, I think we know. I mean, we can just tell by the enthusiasm and all this that you're totally appreciative of this incredible. Um, opportunity and in the participation, um, man, and we're just we're we're proud of you, man. <laughs> you know, like we're we're happy for you. We're proud of you. Like you know, you're 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 like one of us that went out there and did it. Yeah, guard Absolutely. these things. Well, I'm, guard I'm, these uh, things, Glenn. I'm happy that I get a chance to not only do it, but the chance to go to something like Comic Con, yeah. and then to to meet fans like yourselves, and then how much we connect i mean i think the day that we met we talked for two hours I, you're right we did. uh yeah <laughs> the, the, just just talking away about stuff that we loved and so uh when you get a chance to uh work on stuff like this it, it just doesn't get any better so I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys today yeah and let, let's hope this is not the last time let's uh let's plan on meeting up again at comic-con if you're going to be around i know i'm, I'm i will absolutely be there. be there i've had it written into my contract <laughs> all right good yeah, good good can't get out of it <laughs> And uh, yeah, let's you know let's let's do this again next year, okay? Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. If, if not sooner, I, I really look really really great talking with you, and, and I, I appreciate the opportunity to to uh, get caught up because oh, uh, I, awesome. I think what you do what you guys do is awesome. All right, yeah. man. You're you're incredibly gracious, and uh, and uh, you know a lot of startups they don't make it, but I think this ILM. I think you guys got a future. <laughs> it's going, going somewhere. Places? They usually fold within 50 years, but I think you might stick around. <laughs> well, fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> Glenn McIntosh, everybody. I've got to have more milk. Mr. Spark, 
it's sad that we had to. We, we went looking for a Star Trek cereal commercial, and all I could find was a Cocoa Krispies, uh, you know, Star Trek promo. I'm sure there's been one. I don't. Star Trek I, I don't think label. they've ever had their own cereal. Though. I'm sure it exists. It's just there's just no. YouTube I can't program. believe I've ever. No, that's <laughs> that seems hard to believe. Well, That'd be to the get first cereal this. commercial on YouTube. I'll get some uh, interns to figure this one out. Yeah, good. Good. Yeah, yeah, Call yeah. the interns in. Put them to work on that. Uh, well, anyway, the reason why, yes, Glenn McIntosh also worked on worked on Into Star Trek Into Darkness, yeah. the most uh, the most recent as of now because the newest one isn't out yet. Yes, he was. So the that's lead why you can still say Into Darkness is the most recent. Mm-hmm. But uh, as we prepare for the next uh, movie, the that's new coming one's out, coming out. We're going to celebrate that with uh, we're, well, uh, this was just released on June fourteenth. Yes, yes, um, just recent, hot on the streets. If you've got if you've got one of them four K TVs, yep. Guess what? It's about time you can watch 4K worth of Star Trek and Star Trek Into Darkness Ultra HD uh, three disc sets are now out. Yeah, this is the for Ultra you HD. with the good TVs. <laughs> you rich kids that have you the rich good kids, TVs. you ready for it? Because 4K <laughs> worth of Star Trek coming upside your dome. That's right. That's right. And um, uh, our our guest uh, was the lead animator on Star Trek Into Darkness. God damn! Another no, thing that's just awesome. I mean, that's, that he it's does. amazing. This guy is he's been involved in just pretty much all those cultural cornerstones. Yeah. I mean, he's uh, been there for, you know, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. And anything where, you know, people are willing to shell out $100 million to uh-huh. make a movie, mm-hmm. they, they, that's when they call Glenn. Yeah. You're only doing $50 million. Let's do it like an indie art house. No, don't bother him. No. <laughs> okay. He's got more important things to do. Yeah. He's, yeah. Got, a, he's got a 60-story tall plesiosaur dinosaur that he's working on. It's going to look perfect. You can't afford it. And he was in London before the interview. We have still don't still, know. Still won't tell us. There and the bonds of, of Comic Con friendship only take you so far. <laughs> we'll see if we could break them in a little further. <laughs> by the way, com- uh, by the way, Comic Con is back. It's at the end of July. Um, we're gonna we're gonna definitely make a strong effort to see Glenn again, among many other amazing, awesome things. And if not, we'll just make new friends. Yeah, <laughs> there'll, there'll be some there'll be some some friendly, relatable, geeky people there that I can't wait to talk to. Uh, it's, it's just this is. This is my season. Yep. I cannot wait for this. And, um, and in that in that seasonal spirit of giving, we are giving away some of these 4K exactly. Ultra HD Star Trek sets. Uh, one for uh, Star Trek, uh, the the reboot. Uh huh. And then one JJ Abrams, both of them, and then one for the Into Darkness. Exactly, Star Trek Into Darkness. Um, I'm going to be giving some away on Twitter, um, but I will take uh, take the we'll take the what do you think? Let's take the 15th email. Ooh, okay. I like it. <laughs> okay. I'm just pulling that number straight out of nowhere. Yep. Um, but, yeah, um, we can send you – we're going to send uh, one copy of Star Trek and one copy of Star Trek Into Darkness with the lead animator, Glenn McIntosh. Um, and those are the 4K Ultra HD uh, yeah. special so- combo edition. These, these things even include the IMAX versions. So somehow your TV at home, your 4D TV, is going to be able You're to fit insane. an iMac. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is ridiculous. It expands like a Jetsons car <laughs> into an iMac screen, <laughs> I'm quite sure. It's going to do that whole Transformer sound effect. That <laughs> <laughs> which, by the way, Glenn McIntosh worked on Transformers. Yeah, he probably, <laughs> he, he probably did that with his mouth one day when he was having lunch. He said, oh, you need a noise for it? <laughs> 
That's awesome. Just a guy's a guy's great that way. Oh, he's the best. Uh, speaking of Star Trek, though. I oh, think by the way, would... my what? email. Uh, I want you to send that to. Oh yeah, the old email. Saturday thing. morning serial at Maddie P Radio. Saturday, just spell it all out. Saturday morning serial at Maddie P Radio. Say it one more time. Saturday morning serial at Matty P Radio. We're going to get you a copy of Star Trek um, and the Star Trek. The 15th Dark. email. 15th. So you have yes. no way to rig it for yourself. We have no way to predict who's going to win. This is the fairest system. It's just going to be the, num- the number just 15th email. 15. You're going exactly. to go 15 down from all the yep. entries, and boom, that person's got it. And remember, if you're, let's say that you didn't listen to this as a live broadcast, and you're listening to this on podcast or on demand on blog, uh, at, it's our, our channel on Blog Talk Radio. If you're hearing it on demand for free, and you're like, ah, I, am, I, am, am I too late? I don't is, is it worth my time somebody, to send to send a six word email to Saturday Morning Serial <laughs> at MattyPRadio.com? Many people think that they're not winners; they feel like they're losers. And I, that's exactly what, what you, we fight here on the show. You are a winner. Damn send right. Send me that I email. Um, just uh, you know, just send me an email. Say hello. Tell me how much you love Star Star Trek. Uh, tell mm-hmm. me how much you love Glenn McIntosh. Tell me that you love ILM, and we're gonna. And if anybody mentions Star Wars That's okay in these too. Star Trek emails, no. Oh. I demand they are taken out of rotation, <laughs> okay. and they don't even count. Like, you have to wait until you get a full 15 who listen to the directions. Well, or just, just me. That's, that's, uh, please do that for me. Tell I know me how you're, much you love You're Jar-Jar curating Binks. the email, but please do that. <laughs> I, no, no, you have to promise. If someone mentions Jar Jar Binks, they're out of there. <laughs> you and the Jar Jar hate. No, I it's not hate. I, I just want to bury him now. <laughs> <laughs> Jar Jar's uh, done enough. Jar Jar's done enough. And most importantly, he's not on Star Trek. Star Trek, everybody, coming out, uh, the newest one, which unfortunately will be the final Star Trek mm-hmm. to feature... Uh, Anton Yelchin, incredible performing as uh, Chekhov. Chekhov, yeah. Uh, the the tragedy that no one could have foreseen or prevented occurred. It and, still seems quite and we lost unbelievable. We lost a great performer, mm-hmm. and uh, this guy also played one of the greatest characters in science fiction. He also played Reese, Kyle Reese. Yeah. In John Terminator, Connor's father. John Connor's father. He. It's one of my favorite Terminator movies. It really is. I loved that movie. He's a big reason why. So I wanted to be, uh, you know, one of the um, content providers that uh, acknowledges what an amazing job he did in this particular role, a role that I hold very, very dear. I loved Kyle Reese. He was a... Um, you can call him a hero of mine as far as science fiction movies go. I just I love that character, and uh, I don't want it to go unsaid how impressed I was with him and his performance. Um, yeah, some of these iconic roles were in very safe hands with him, and, yeah. uh, and you will be missed. And and we, we, we didn't want to go without remembering him. Uh, about a year or two ago, we spoke with uh, Walter Koenig. Mm-hmm. The original. The original Chekhov mm-hmm. from Star Trek. Uh, we and we even had a question that was submitted to mm-hmm. us. Yeah, it wasn't right. even our own. That's right. I don't so, know why I feel the need to distance myself. I but, think I know why. <laughs> but anyway, it was uh, it, it was uh, asking uh, Mr. Koenig what he thought about uh, Mr. Yelchin's performance, how he was handling the new role, mm-hmm. and uh, it gave us one of our favorite moments, or at least Marky, I know you really enjoy this moment. Yeah. But also, I think it's worth uh, it's worth remembering because we have lost. 
I think uh, someone who was was headed for a long and, and absolutely and brilliant There's, career. Let's see. I almost forgot. Uh, we've got another question from the social media that I promised I would ask. This is from uh, Jimmy in San Diego. Uh, and he wanted to know, uh, oh, and he says he's a self-confessed uh, uh, little kid fan, so happens to be a married father of two. Again, speaking to cross-generational appeal. But he wanted to know first your take on uh, on on Anton Yelchin's performance as as the Chekhov character, and specifically his accent. And is he hamming it up the same way that Gene Roddenberry had you ham yours up? You know, I really, really object to that term. Uh, it really sends uh, my blood boiling. Uh, I don't believe that in any shape, way, shape, or form I hammed up that accent. Um, I, if that's the case, I should have said to my father when he said, pass the vegetables, Dad, you're hamming it up. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my, the way my father spoke. That's the way some Russian dialects are. That's the way some German dialects are. If you listen carefully, there are some German dialects where they substitute the V and the W, replace the V for the W and vice versa. Um, so uh, I think Anton accent is fine. I think he certainly did try to, uh, to replicate mine, and if he had his own way, being only um, coming to this country from Russia when he was one years old, I'm sure he would have chosen a different path than the one that I did. That's not to say that what I did was not uh, was not accurate for some dialects, but in any case, I think he's a terrific actor. Uh, I was very very proud of his work, and I know he has a huge um, future in the business. Not only as Chekhov, I certainly hope certainly hope not as Chekhov alone, but playing many roles. He's done title roles in other films. Um, he's, he played opposite Anthony Hopkins in a film when he was even younger. So uh, he doesn't need me to defend him, and, uh, and at the same time I do support him because I think he's, he's so much fun. And now we know. And knowing is half the battle. Oh, this is enough of this.